The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. Now, let's go to shame, because shame maybe is the most helpful thing. So, if the world hates you, John 13, 18, and 19, you know, says Jesus, that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Father, help us, please. Would you please give us strength (coughs) so that we will be as wise as serpent and as harmless as doves. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The year 2015 left no doubt the church in these United States is entering a new age of persecution. Three attacks upon God's condemnation of homosexuality is an abomination, and that's from Leviticus 18.22 and Deuteronomy 22.5. Three attacks upon God's condemnation of homosexuality is an abomination, demonstrated the strength and determination of the forces of evil in their attack upon God's law and those who are faithful to bear witness to it. All three attacks resulted in victories for the wicked, but the response of the church to these three defeats has increasingly been to try to appease her enemies with half-truths about God's precious gift of sexuality. The church has been given orders by her master to serve as a faithful witness to his law. His law cannot be separated from his gospel. He has designed the preaching of the gospel to go out from, quote, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, unquote. 1 Timothy 3.15. We are the world's salt and light, the world's faithful witness, and our Lord has warned us, Mark 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark 8, 38. During this past year, though, we have shown fear. Too often we have not prayed for holy boldness in our witnesses. The Apostle Paul asked the saints to pray for him. It's one of the most hilarious things in the New Testament. Is the Apostle Paul asking people to pray that he'd be bold as he should be. This is hilarious. This dude, would you stop being bold, you know? Instead, there have been increasing evidences of us being ashamed of the gospel of man's sinfulness and God's absolute holiness. Notice I didn't say human's sinfulness. I do say human's. But can we maybe just have, uh, you know, affirmative action for man? Just a little affirmative action. What are the three defeats? First, in its Obergefell ruling this past year, the Supreme Court of the United States declared homosexual marriage a right guaranteed by our Constitution. Individual Christians have begun to suffer for their witness against this assault upon God's law. Small business owners have been sued for speaking and witnessing against the homosexual perversion. Is that how you'd talk about homosexuality? If you were talking to a man who fights against same-sex attraction, 
would you call it sodomy or a perversion or an abomination? If you wouldn't, you are ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that's always how you talk about it. There are times to talk about gay. Okay? All right. One of the better-known examples is a Christian couple in Oregon who declined to bake a cake for the celebration of a lesbian wedding. The lesbians filed a complaint with the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries against the Christian couple, Aaron and Melissa Klein. And news media recently crowed over the Kleins being forced to hand over a check for $135,000 to the state as compensation for the lesbians' emotional pain and suffering. Now, that's bad, but listen to this. In his final ruling on the case, Oregon Labor Commissioner Brad Havakian warned the clients that they were absolutely prohibited by Oregon law from using any method of communication to express their Christian conscience concerning homosexual weddings in connection with the sale of their baked goods. Quote, this is what he ordered. The commissioner of the Bureau of Labor and Industries hereby orders respondents Aaron Klein and Melissa Klein to cease and desist from publishing, circulating, issuing or displaying, or causing to be published any communication, notice, advertisement, or sign of any kind to the effect that any of the accommodations, advantages, facilities, services, or privileges of a place of public accommodation will be refused, withheld from, or denied to, or that any discrimination will be made against any person on account of sexual orientation. In interviews, the Kleins have said that they were afraid their Christian witness would end in their business going bankrupt. In addition to being forced to pay the lesbians $135,000, the Kleins have lost their retail store and now bake and sell out of their own home. Such persecutions are multiplying across our country, demonstrating that Christians will no longer be allowed to exercise their religious freedom in public. Which, of course, Daryl Hart and his two kingdom guys are happy with. So, when it concerns the sexual perversion of sodomy, they will be subject to show trials, media firestorms, fines, and they'll soon find themselves bankrupt or unable to find employment. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is not so that we all feel righteously indignant that our citizens' rights are being taken away. I'm telling you about this so that you understand that as you preach and you teach, you're going to want to trim God's truth in such a way that you can give an out to your people so they don't go bankrupt because they pay your salary. I'm not asking us to have a citizen's revolt. I'm asking us to have a pastor's revolt. To stiffen the spines of the people in our pews so that they're willing to lose their business. Second, here in Indiana a few months ago, Governor Mike Pence, okay? Third, a number of cities and states across our nation have passed laws criminalizing. Now listen to me carefully. I've gotten a couple questions on reparative therapy. Listen to me. A number of cities and states across our nation have passed laws criminalizing any therapy or counseling that works with those tempted by the homosexual perversion to repent of that perversion and embrace their heterosexual personhood assigned by God. California, Oregon, Illinois, New Jersey, the District of Columbia, Cincinnati already have adopted these laws and similar legislation is pending in many other states. 
Starting with the Reformation in the 16th century, church fathers were willing. In other words, what I'm saying to you is, if you're aware of the fraternal debate over reparative therapy within the church, let me make it absolutely clear to you that that has nothing to do with what is going on around the country in the criminalizing reparative therapy. What they're criminalizing is anything that's opposite of children's hospital surgically mutilating the genitalia of little children. So what is not only embraced, but forced on little children and paid for by our public health care dollars is the mutilation of a body to make it not conform to what God made it so that it can conform to the psychological identity of the mother's aspirations through her son to raise a gay woman. You know what I'm saying? But then, if you try to bring the psychology towards the body through just counseling, you know, he's using knives, cutting, and, and drugs that grow breasts and, and, and facial hair. And this we pay for. But when you simply talk, simply read the Bible to an adolescent calling him to love the sex God made him, this is criminalized. This is reparative therapy. Don't ever listen to the Christians that are telling you they're against reparative therapy because reparative therapy is a sophisticated uh, form of counseling that doesn't have the gospel of Jesus. We're repenting. Do you think the city fathers of Cincinnati give two rips whether repentance is a part of the therapy? No. What they're criminalizing is any attempt to move a child towards the body and sex God gave them. That's reparative therapy. And now all of a sudden, Christians are jumping on the bandwagon. Yep, we're, we're opposed to reparative therapy. <laughs> you know. Starting with the Reformation in the 16th century, church fathers were willing to die on the battlefield contending for God's law and gospel. Great servants of God, such as Luther, Melanchthon, Farrell, Bucer, Ridley, Cranmer, Knox, and Calvin, suffered and died as faithful witnesses against Rome's idolatry and lawlessness. The Protestant church today is built upon the suffering and martyrdom these men and their brothers and sisters in Christ endured. But as Christians in America today, we are demonstrating our unwillingness to follow in their footsteps. Because I'm Reformed, the Protestant retreat from the gospel has been most visible to me through four movements of compromise spreading through the Reformed part of the Christian church. First, Reformed church officers have announced their repentance, quote-unquote, of their former insensitivity toward gays. This is Al Moore. Specifically, these men say they repent of having denied in past years that there is any such thing as, quote, sexual orientation, unquote. The false concept that preferences for sexual practices and gender-related choices are inborn and therefore must be accepted. They confess that they have now come to see their error, and so they now accept that sexual orientation is a real deal and must be recognized and embraced by the church if we desire to be gospel witnesses to gay. Why the change? These men say their past denials of sexual orientation came out of their insufficient understanding of the early onset and tenacity of homosexual temptation. 
This temptation, they argue, arrives so early in life and has such a deep hold on gay men and women that it can't possibly be a matter of choice, nor the result of cultural and other influences. Therefore, they say, any attempt to deny gay identity is wrongheaded. Gays did not, quote, choose, unquote, to be gay. They merely discovered they were gay, usually at such an early age that no one can fault them for their lusts or identity. Thus, their sexual orientation is a hard fact of their existence, and it is no help to them psychologically, emotionally, or spiritually for God's people to deny their orientation or call them to repudiate it. And so the state of the art is, my sexuality is not my identity. Okay? Second, Reformed church officers have announced that, quote, godliness is not heterosexuality. Such a statement has never been made across 2,000 years of church history. It's incomprehensible. Imagine going back to Chrysostom, Augustine, let alone the Apostle Paul, and saying, Paul, I think it would be helpful in Romans 1 somewhere to find a place to insert the statement, godliness is not heterosexuality. Corinth was a city as sexually debauched as our own time, and yet it's inconceivable to think of the Apostle Paul demeaning heterosexuality. In his letters to the Corinthians, the way Reformed celebrities have taken to demeaning heterosexuality the past couple of years on their publicity sites, books, and press releases. Did you notice what I called their websites? (laughs) Huh? Their publicity sites. You have to begin to think of them that way. There's a way Al Moore gets 2,000 people to come and listen to him pontificate. These guys are massive marketing machines, and that in itself is foundational to the problems that we're having in the church today. The church today has gone to video venues, it's gone to publicity, it's gone to money, and it's going to come crashing down absolutely crashing down because there's nothing left to protect. You know, if you're going to be a famous warrior, you have to fight. And he's done a good job up until now. A lot of them have done good jobs up until now. But we've arrived at the day when the the truth in the inward parts is going to show up. (laughs) Okay? And we'll see if it's about money or God. Now, I know you don't like me saying that, but I'll be warning you, David and my father, before he died, he knew all these cats. That's all they are, the cats, you know. And he said to me over and over again, Tim, every man is out to build his kingdom. He ran with the wolves, and that was his analysis of the wolves. Second, reform officers have announced, okay, so... This is, these are their statements. Now I'm quoting, okay? What the Bible commands is not heterosexuality, but holiness. What's with the adversative? But, but, not this, but this? It is possible to wrongly assume that opposite sex attraction and behavior are repeatedly endorsed. Well, I would not want to wrongly assume. I mean, you know. (laughs) I know I'm stupid, and I know I tend to assumptions that are idiotic. So, whoa, (laughs) I almost stepped in it, didn't I? (laughs) I wouldn't want to wrongly assume, yeah, okay. 
In fact, this is not the case. The Bible never portrays heterosexuality in general to be a good thing. Okay, guys, you with me now? There is not one place in the entire Bible where men and women are commanded to have sexual desire for the opposite sex. Hold on. Hold on. Indiscriminately. Now, look, the devil's in the adverbs. (laughs) You know, in other words, we're not supposed to go out and rut. What a relief. The biblical norm for our sexual lives is chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. Well, they didn't hit a false note there. Except I would like to say that it's pathetically weak. Yeah, the biblical norm. You know, God commanded. The biblical norm, you know. I mean, it's, I know it's the biblical norm, but, you know, we're all weak. You know, it's a fallen world, and... I know we're broken. But the biblical norm, okay. But I'm not going to fault that sentence. It's a good one, okay? Thus, the marriage covenant provides the norm for our sex. Oh, the norm. <laughs> the norm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The norm for our sexual rights. Not heterosexuality is an identity category. Yeah, so gay marriage is okay, says Father Bill, which brings me to a point. If there was a man, <clears throat> if there were a couple men here who should be speaking instead of moi, they would be Father Bill Mauser and my brother David. But by accidents of history, I'm here talking to Father Bill. I don't know, there's not a man in the country who knows sexuality better than Father Bill. Not one. It's true. And I've said this for decades, David. David knows I've said this. And so I want you to give him a hand of applause because he's a hero. He's been fighting this battle for years. And he has a curriculum on sexuality, and uh, we should have had it exhibited here. But we don't think of everything because we're out to build our kingdom, not yours. There's some truth to that. So, uh, Father Bill's here. He's Santa Claus, Father Christmas. And so, find out about his ministry. What's the actual address of the website? Fiveaspects.org. Fiveaspects.net. Five Aspects. My best friend Robert Woodyard uses their curriculum in his church and says it's wonderful. F-I-V-E, Aspects, A-S-P-E-C-T-S, dot org. And you know that Father Bill and I have had a 20-year argument over whether or not we should use the word gender? Isn't that funny? Yeah, we've been arguing about that for 20 years. Okay. Our Lord Jesus commanded heterosexuality when he responded to a question from the religious leaders of his time saying, Quote, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, Mark 10, 6. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, the apostle Paul warned against those reputing heterosexuality when he wrote, nor the effeminate. Neither the effeminate nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. From the beginning, God made us male and female, both the beginning in the Garden of Eden and the beginning, and the beginning, 
when each of us was conceived in our mother's womb. Homosexuality is godlessness. From the beginning, God forbade homosexuality and commanded heterosexuality. While it's certainly true that all heterosexuality is not godly, duh! (laughs) The heterosexuality God decreed when he made male and female in the beginning is godly. Heterosexuality could, I suppose, be used as a grab bag term for adultery, fornication, rape, and incest. But this is not what most people mean when they speak of heterosexuality. See the equivocation everywhere. It's the way they refer to the state of being in which a man lives out the sex God made him at conception, fulfilling that calling by loving and living his manhood physically, desiring a woman for his wife, and in his character, bearing responsibility. Heterosexuality is always spoken of in opposition to the perversion of homosexuality today. So contrary to what some Reformed pastors and elders are saying, the heterosexuality that is in contradistinction to homosexuality is godliness. Third, leaders within the conservative Presbyterian Church in America have begun to provide platforms within their congregations to a group that calls themselves gay Christians. This movement is spreading across the United Kingdom and North America through the promotion of what are called, quote, spiritual friendships, unquote, between, quote, gay celibate Christians, unquote. This is the new sweet spot of gay ministry. Reformed pastors and elders who have been squeamish about the gay lifestyle are able to assuage their consciences by claiming they now do a better job loving gays because gays feel welcome within their fellowship. It is not uncommon for these gays to have lived in sexual intimacy for years prior to becoming gay celibate Christians. They call the change in their relationship spiritual friendship, quote-unquote, claiming it's a contemporary parallel to the celibacy commended by the Apostle Paul. Some of these gay Christian partners have children who have given birth, they have given birth to or adopted during their prior sexual relationship. Thus, in some congregations, we find gay Christian couples living together as partners, sharing the same home and children. They are not led to repent of their homosexual identity, what they refer to as their gay orientation. They need not move apart from their homosexual lover. They need not place their sons or daughters in a Christian home in which they may grow up being raised by both a Christian father and a Christian mother. As long as they say they're celibate, it's live and let live. With their fellow church members, pastors and elders, feeling very progressive in their innovative approach to the gay lifestyle. Fourth, Reformed church officers have joined the crusade against what the homosexualists refer to as, quote, reparative or conversion of therapy, unquote. This therapy or counseling works with men and women tempted by homosexuality to help them repent of their sinful desires and move toward embracing the sexual personhood God gave them when he knit them together in their mother's wombs. As these officers see it, any attempt to call souls tempted by homosexuality to flee homosexuality and confess their God-given manhood and womanhood is naive, if not abusive. Again, sexual orientation is presented as a real deal, and those who counsel those suffering under a homosexual orientation must not call them to flee that orientation, but instead must stop at calling them simply what? To, quote, believe in Jesus. Okay? Believing the gospel will lead to their sexual orientation taking care of itself without any counselor focusing on that orientation itself. 
To review, during this past year, we've watched our Supreme Court rule that homosexual marriage is a basic human right protected by our Constitution. We've watched Indiana throw in the towel on their effort to protect the First Amendment rights of citizens to witness against sin. Scripture declares to be an abomination before the Lord. And states across our nation are passing legislation criminalizing counseling that helps homosexuals to repent of their sin and embrace their heterosexuality. Their manhood and womanhood. The response of Reformed Church officers has been to welcome gays, Christians into the church to repent of their former insensitivity toward homosexuals in denying the early onset of homosexual orientation, as well as how intractable their homosexual orientation is. To join the crusade against counselors who work to help homosexually tempted souls to embrace their heterosexual personhood and to announce, quote, godliness is not heterosexuality. Brothers, this is not the way forward. This is simply what it looks like to be ashamed of the gospel. This is the same shame that got us where we are today. I want to answer a few questions right now, okay, because this has been tough sledding, and I'm sure some of you need to have a little bit of steam relieved. So ask some questions. What about this statement? Uh, I don't really, I, you know, I just really know very little about what you're talking about. I've always been interested in other things, you know. And... Uh, but, you know, there's a, I've heard a saying among evangelicals, and I don't, I don't know who to attribute it to exactly. And when evangelicals use the word sacred, it always sends up a lot of, or like a sacrament, the idea of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. You know, that, there's a lot involved there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what you think about that at all, in a sense. But to me, either sex is a sacrament or sacred, or it's sinful. You know, I don't know. How, how do you feel about that? How would you how do you express that? Well, I would have to talk to you about what you mean by sex. Because sex is identity. So you're a man. So are you saying there's nothing sacred about your sex until you are intimate with your wife in the purity of the marriage bit? No, you're not saying that. So there is an aspect of sex that's sacred that has nothing to do with intercourse which is for us to live what God made us as men and women. The question of referring to sex as a sacrament or as sacred sex, there was a book, who, who wrote that book? Gary Thomas, yeah. Um, if by that he means holy sex, sanctified sex, pure sex, I'm with him. But evangelicals have reduced their religion to such a uh, mystical, vaporous uh, cloud, sort of, to such a, a, a nothingness. It's emotive. There's no doctrinal architectonics. Is it? Evangelicals have reduced Christian faith to nothing other than me and Jesus. That's it. In that context, evangelicals are very vulnerable to sacramentalism. Because sacramentalism brings back flesh and blood. And then marriage becomes a sacrament. And I I honestly think that uh, the debate over marriage, without having a commensurate debate over sexual identity and being faithful to what God made us as men and women, is, is playing right into their hands. Because it's like marriage is a sacrament. Well, then, in, in order to fully participate in the divine, we have to have the kind of intimacy of the marriage bed, you know, and so I just think there's an awful lot of reasons everybody's going back to Rome, an awful lot of reasons, and it's mostly because we have removed 
the proper teaching of the flesh from the church. Okay, so I don't know if that's helpful, but that's my thoughts on that. Any other? Yes, we had to... I have a quick question. I'm sorry, yes. What do you propose as a biblical faithful alternative to the term sexual orientation? Because we're not going to get the culture to stop saying that. Okay, in the chapter on sexual orientation, my wife and I had about an hour and a half argument over this. And I kept telling her there's no such thing as sexual orientation. She kept saying there was. And if you don't argue with your wife, you're missing your best help. Okay, and it, finally, you know, because you know, we're arguing as friends, I think. <laughs> you know? And finally, I said, lover, okay, okay, try this one out. Sexual temptation. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I said, no, that's not what you were saying. You were saying sexual orientation. Sexual temptation. All of us have it. All of us have it from a very early age. All of us discovered it. (laughs) We didn't freely choose it. And so what I do is I go through everything that Al Moore says about sexual orientation, his repentance, his presentation, everything, and I just trade the word orientation for temptation. And it works perfectly. And then at the end, I say, it works perfectly, doesn't it? And everybody that's going to read it is going to and you know, all 12 of you, is going to say, is going to say, yes, it did work perfectly. And then I say, not for Al Mohler, it doesn't. And the reason is, when he says sexual orientation, he is trying to minimize the moral agency of sodomites. Okay? So that's my answer to you. Did that satisfy you? It depends on the it, it, it depends on the circumstance that you're in. Um, if you're dealing with a, a room full of gays, lesbians, uh, yeah, I would probably just refer to it as homosexual temptation. But if you're dealing with a church, I think it's very helpful for us to explain the early onset and tenacity of all of the polymorphic perversions. Dog my life. So then all of a sudden, a gay man in the church hears me say that. They go, yeah, that's what I, yeah, yeah, you're speaking for me. I say, yeah, I know I'm speaking for you. You know, we're all dogged by sexual perversions, all of us. If you have a child, and when your child was born, you didn't realize, as soon as your child was born, that you could kill it out of your anger and that you could sexually molest it out of your lust, you were an idiot. Okay? <laughs> we all have it. They're tenacious. They, the, the onset is early. And we need to begin to take them all seriously because my real concern in, in, in the evangelical Reformed Church today is actually not homosexuality. Do you know what my real concern is? No. Well, yeah, that's, that's just a, it's completely taken over the church, soft men, Malachi. No, my real concern is incest. It is absolutely everywhere, and pastors refuse to see it, and elders refuse to help. And it's everywhere. I mean, honestly, it is in your church, and you don't know it, and I know it. And it's especially in large homeschooling families. <laughs> Classical. 
large homeschooling families. And none of you think it is, and, and you're an idiot. You are an idiot. It is everywhere. And so that's my real concern, uh, is that we will not allow ourselves to recognize that every sin is in our churches because every sin is in the Bible. You know, you look at Scripture, and dude, incest. Hey, the proudest church in the New Testament. How does Paul deal with the proudest church of the New Testament? Well, okay, you're so proud, Corinthians. All right, let me talk about the man that has his father's wife. <laughs> you know, and Calvin says the reason he trots that out is because they're so proud. And there's nothing like incest to humble. Nothing like incest to humble you. Right? Are we all together on this? Right? Just think theoretically. If you had it in your church, it would be humbling to your church, right? Hypothetically. And so what is the main attribute of the Reformed Church around the world? Pride. And that's our experience in this church. When we get to know your children, they come, up and they come to college, what do you think we spend our lives dealing with in this church? The products of, of homes, Christian homes and churches. And do you think those parents and, and those pastors, where they came from, are happy when we bring it into the open and deal with it? Huh? So that's my real concern, is incest and child sexual abuse. Why? Well, we've brought naked flesh onto our laptops and our screens in our homes. Guess what? If there are naked women that the father of the home is looking at, the son is going to have sex with his sister. Okay? So have I woken you up? Yes. Just to follow up, actually, on what I said, I'm going to contradict myself now, because uh, one of the things that you hear all the time is, well, I was born that way. That va uh, validates it, and that God made me that way. But the problem with that is, even that can be refuted biblically, because we're all born with, as you said, sexual temptation. Yes, yes, yes. So we're all born in sin, so no surprise. You're born in sin, I'm born in sin. We just have different sins, we have propensities That's toward, right. That's and we have to repent right. of sin. That's absolutely and, and right. And not justify but if we made. don't deal with sin in our sermons, and we're not practical in preaching against sin in our sermons, and we don't ask diagnostic questions matter-of-factly in our pastoral counseling sessions, then of course we have a bad conscience about men tempted by same-sex intimacy, because that's, that's, you know, that's like, oh, yuck. And so then we're going to come up with a cheap solution and then have the audacity to present ourselves as have the audacity of presenting ourselves as, as the new integrity and understanding of ministry to same-sex people. And I'm an old battle axe. And this is not helpful to homosexuals. Okay? The most helpful thing you can do is refer to it as sodomy. Call them a sodomite. You know you're a sodomite. You look at a man's penis on his computer. On your computer, you whack over a man's penis. God calls this an abomination. Do you remember what he did to sodomy? And to the sodomites? And he's, now after a couple days with me, you realize, when I say that to men that are tempted by same-sex intimacy, they don't think that I'm like peeing on them. 
What they think is, oh, okay, you get it. Yeah, I know. It's awful. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. And then all the shrews and all the nasty, effeminate men on the Internet come down on me with both feet telling me that there's a better way of selling Jesus. And don't I understand? This, this, is, this is what we're hoping will be helpful to you, Tina and Jake and Joseph and I, okay? And this is on shame. And this didn't come until you write the book, and then you realize you've left something big out. Remember when we were writing the book on fatherhood, and David all of a sudden says to me, we're off working together, David says, you know something? We haven't mentioned fruitfulness in this book on fatherhood. <laughs> it's like, no, are you serious? How can you be a father unless you're fruitful? All right, so shame. Not long ago, I was reading a Korean newspaper and came across an op-ed piece commending Confucianism. The writer spoke of the high value Confucianism places on shame. Recognizing one's, quote, moral inferiority, he wrote, is a good thing. Because it leads one to desire and strive for self-improvement. He quoted Mencius, the, two, the number two Confucian after Confucius. Quote, it's a little different here in the West. We glory in our shame. Oh, read it? Okay. What he said was Mencius, a man, Mencius. Mencius? How do you say it? Mencius. <laughs> says Mencius, a man must not be without shame, for the shame of being without shame is shamelessness indeed, unquote. It's a little different here in the West. We glory in our shame. What the prophet Hosea said about Israel's rulers is equally true of our own. Quote, their rulers dearly love shame. Hosea 4.18. To love shame is to be shameless. God gives us pain to protect our bodies and shame to protect our souls. Not being able to feel pain destroys a man's body, but shamelessness destroys his soul. Shame turns us from evil, protecting us from God's wrath against ungodliness. When we're ruled by those who do dearly love shame, we are in desperate straits and must plead with God to restore shame to us. <clears throat> How does our nation's love of shame show itself? In Scripture, to uncover nakedness is to uncover shame. The same Hebrew word used in the Old Testament for nakedness also means shame. And the connection is most obvious in the Garden of Eden, immediately after Adam ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3, 7, and 8, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The moment Adam sinned, note, not when Eve sinned, Adam was the responsible sex. The moment Adam betrayed his responsibility, the fall happened, and he brought sin and death and hell on his wife and all his descendants. Adam and Eve knew their shame. To cover it, first they sewed fig leaves together, and then they took to the woods to hide. That was then. 
but this is now. Recently, news sites, last year, Jürgen and I are about to go up to Michigan and write together. We do this every year for a week. And we sit around at night and we talk. We drink Irish whiskey and beer and talk for four to six hours every night. And last year, and most of it is him on a riff, because he's very educated and European, and so I just love to learn from him, and I learn a lot. And last year, he got on a riff about the French, you know, a German, (laughs) talking about the French. And so this made it into the book. Are you ready, Jürgen? You haven't heard this yet. Oh, and we read what we're writing to each other. Recent news sites reported the French were outlawing the Burkini. Back in 2004, the Burkini was invented as a way for women of all faiths to enjoy the beach without sacrificing their modesty. Twelve years later, Burkinis had spread around the world and Frenchmen decided they'd had enough. Determined to put a stop to this outbreak of modesty, French leaders passed laws making burkinis illegal. The world was then treated to pictures of burly French gendarmerie, armed with large guns standing over mothers sunbathing on the beach. (coughs) The mother's crime was failing to expose the precise amount of flesh required by law. The policemen issued citations and the matrons paid their fines. Loving shame, our world, (coughs) demands flesh. And if not nakedness itself, then tight-fitting shirts that reveal pecs, low-cut necklines that reveal breasts, and yoga pants that reveal bottoms. Billboards are a melange of male and female flesh. We have nakedness at the beach, nakedness on the internet, naked women warriors in our video games, nakedness oozing off the red carpet at the Oscars, and cleavage Sunday mornings. Recently, I heard a Christian man in this church complaining about fat women wearing yoga pants. He did not mention being offended that thin women wear them. Beyond turning from modesty to nakedness, we've also turned from manhood and womanhood to effeminacy and androgyny. If taking off our clothes is shameful, taking off our sex is even worse. In past centuries, Christians recoiled in disgust and horror at even the most glancing reference to men having sex with other men. For 2,000 years, men who lie with males have been called sodomites. For 2,000 years... The sin was called sodomy because doing so helped people feel the heat and smell the sulfur of that terrible day when in his wrath God consumed those most wicked men of Sodom. Speaking of sodomy preserved the shame of their gross sexual perversion warning souls away from it. But no more. Listen, people. You know I've got a passion on this, right? You all see it. I mean, I never say I have a passion for anything. I despise that kind of talking. But you know, I've got a passion on this thing. Why? Because of my sexual sin. I committed sexual sins at a time when there was shame. My wife and I got married in front of all the rich and famous in Wheaton, and she was pregnant. 
okay? And what a precious thing to have everybody crying in that wedding. You know, you never realize you're denying repentance. That's what you're doing. You take the shame away. How are they going to repent? I remember Mark and Carol, God bless them, when we came back from, or from Oregon. And we just found out we were pregnant. I remember Mark and Carol looking at us. And they didn't, they didn't know what they were saying. They were only a couple years older than we were. And they looked at us and they said, no, you're not going to get married in the church, are you? And this is Ken Taylor's daughter and Joe Bailey's son. Why? It would be shameful for us to be married in the church. And so we got married in their living room. Come on. I know what I talk about. Where would I have been if I had not had the full effect of my godly family and all the people we loved shaming us for our sin? A fornication. And we didn't have an abortion, thank God. Where would you be if you didn't have shame over your sexual sin? You'd counsel couples who are, you know, sometimes 40 and 50 years old, sometimes 60, and they're having marital problems. And guess what? You know what comes out immediately in many, many cases is, well, we had sex before we got married. Nobody knows it. All of you have sexual sin that you are absolutely ashamed of. I don't have any question, <laughs> right? I know more about your family than you'd ever dream. Hating the words sodomy and sodomite because they communicate shame, removing these words became ground zero in the homosexualist's unholy war against God's male and female. But they didn't stop with shaming everyone who used these words. You laughing? Okay. They went on and demanded everyone join them in glorying in and celebrating the perverted identity and practice. Having dispatched shame, the next step was to take pride in their sexual perversion, gay pride. So they printed buttons and bumper stickers, wrote books and articles, filled the National Mall with their rainbow quilts, and held ever larger and ever more obscene gay pride parades. The gay pride movement that started in New York City's Greenwich Village and San Francisco's Castro had its first victories outside the church, but now even inside the church we have surrendered to gay pride. No one understands how shame is a blessing and therefore works to restore the shame God decreed for the effeminate and men who lie with men. Our pastors no longer speak of sodomy or sodomites. We speak of an alternative lifestyle, gays and lesbians. We endorse something called gay orient sexual orientation. We claim to be understanding and to feel sympathy for, quote, sexual minorities, unquote. Even the most conservative pastors don't condemn the effeminate anymore. We're happy the word was removed from our Bible version. Because its removal allows us to avoid defining the sin. You cannot define effeminacy without defining masculinity and femininity. Who wants to declare what's masculine and what's feminine to his congregation to try to say what it means to be a hard woman 
or a soft man, and you know what's coming, hoots and catcalls. Then an aging congregation, lower budgets, and certainly no more invitations to speak at retreats or lead a workshop at Christian celebrity conferences. What we don't realize is that this was the plan from the beginning. Homosexuals were determined to kill shame, and they've done so. The shame of sodomy and lesbianism has been absolutely, completely, entirely annihilated. The 20th century's first wave of homosexuals was content to heal themselves by pursuing self-acceptance while working to improve homosexuals' public image. The nation's first homosexual rights organization, called the Mattachine Society, was typical of this first wave. They were a civilized breed. Despite sodomy laws on the books everywhere, excepting the occasional Oscar Wilde, who got his flame on too, too publicly... Society members lived their sexual lives in the shadows and were left alone. Then, in the late 70s and early 80s, a new movement was birthed. The well-bred members of the Mattachine Society were left behind by the hordes of gay men who moved from middle America to gay-friendly urban communities on the perimeters of North America, such as San Francisco's Castro District. An historic article on the Castro, published in two successive issues of the New Yorker summer of 1986, They estimated that during the summer of 1978, the population of gays in the Castro and San Francisco had swollen to 75,000 to 150,000. This, quote, in this, thus, quote, in this city of fewer than 700,000 people, approximately one out of every five adults was gay. Adding that, quote, the sheer concentration of gay people in San Francisco may have had no parallel in history. Styling themselves, what did they call themselves? Anyone want to guess? The Castro District? They called themselves the Castroids. Styling themselves Castroids, these gay men were not content to work on self-acceptance and improve their image. They were out to lead a revolution. Now I'm reading from the New Yorker. Okay? For them, gay liberation was simply a logical extension of the new left, the counterculture, black power, and the feminist movement. The gay liberationists adopted militant, confrontational tactics. The rhetoric, and by the way, when I read this, I'm not trying to get us to be militant. It's the word of God preached and taught and counseled that is our weapon. But I want you to see what they're doing, okay? The rhetoric of oppression, consciousness, and revolution came naturally to them. They had as well a sense of impending apocalyptic change. They were not out to persuade and educate. They were out to shock the society into a sudden change of consciousness. That's what they called it. Like feminism, gay liberation, offered a new perspective on the whole culture. The taboo against homosexuality went, after all, to the heart of it. To deny the taboo was to throw into question what? The traditional family structure, traditional sex roles, and sexual mores. In breaking sex taboos, they would change the whole society. San Francisco was to become a model for the new society. And then this is their statement, a gay Israel. And this is the New Yorker 30 years ago. 
I'll never forget reading it. Do you remember reading that article? I'll never forget reading it. Rhetoric matters. Words matter. And God warns us against the sins of gays and lesbians by Scripture's use of the words profane, abomination, defiled, perversion, blood guiltiness, and detestable. In connection with the sodomitic sin, it is God himself who inspires these words to attach shame to effeminacy and same-sex intercourse. The words are chosen to awaken shame. God also shames the gay and lesbian sin by placing same-sex intercourse in sinless alongside the most terribly degraded sins of incest, bestiality, and murder. In other words, if you write or speak about the sins of gays and lesbians in any way similar to the way the Bible speaks of them, you will be shamed. Which brings us to an important point. The first law of thermodynamics also applies to shame. Just as energy can be transformed from one form to another but can't be created or destroyed, so it is with shame. You can shift it from one place to another, but you can't get rid of it, any of it. The tactic homosexuals use to remove sodomy's shame is to shame those who try to protect it. In an instant, we went from sodomy being shameful to the use of the word sodomy being shameful. From shaming sodomites to shaming people who refuse to join the gay parade of gay pride. We went from calling the sexual perversion sodomy in order to remind souls of its shame and help them flee it to calling people who called the sin sodomy haters and shaming them for their biblical language. It happened almost imperceptibly, and I was there. Thirty years ago, the board of a reform group in our mainline denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, asked me to write a position statement on sexuality. At the time, there was a growing movement to normalize sodomy within the denomination, and pastors were officiating at gay weddings. When I first entered the ministry, I called uh, Richard Halverson, the chaplain of the Senate, and told him, because we were both in the same denomination, that the New York Times had just reported that there was a gay union, a gay wedding, in his presbytery, and did he know about it, and had he done anything about it? <laughs> you know, I'm 31 years old, and I call the chaplain of the Senate and say, dude, did you do anything about it? And this is why Richard Halverson is, is, remains to this day, he's dead, and one of my heroes. First, he took the phone call. I didn't know him. Second, he said, would you send me that thing from the New York Times? So I sent it to him. The next day, he called me back. He said, Tim, I have to tell you that I'm ashamed. He said, I had seen that. And I just decided I wasn't going to do anything about it because I am so tired. And you know, I don't mind any man alive telling me he's tired. That only built my respect for Richard Halverson. <laughs> it was easy for me to tell him he should do something about it, you know. <laughs> okay. So this was my denomination. They asked me to write a statement on sexuality. And so I worked on the statement. 
and I brought it to our next board meeting for revision and adoption. I got an input from other members of the board, so I expected it to sail through without significant changes. I was surprised when a pastor from Mississippi asked for the word perversion to be added to the statement. He wanted to make sure we declared homosexual practice to be a perversion of God's beautiful gift of sexuality. You may be surprised to hear that I hadn't included the word myself, but you don't know me back then. I had been raised among Wheaton evangelicals. I had done my undergraduate degree at UW-Madison. And then I got the MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary on the North Shore Boston. Boston. So I was about as progressive as an evangelical could be. With both dad and my father-in-law, editors, authors, and publishers, I was about as careful in my word choices then as everyone is now. But that was 30 years ago. Which is to say, I knew precisely what words were gauche, which words I should avoid like the plague. Take sodomy, sodomite, and perversion, for instance. Never in a million years would have it occurred to me to use such hate speech in a public document aimed to be released as a witness to biblical faith within our denomination. We would have been judged dolts, goons, oafs, the great unwashed. I didn't want people to think I was any of those nasty things. Let me open the moment up to you so you understand how I came to repent of my shame over sodomy shame. There were about 25 of us around the conference table. Most of us were northerners, but there were a few from the south and a few from the west coast, including a beautiful MDiv student from Fuller Theological Seminary who was a young black woman. Everyone had read the statement and was ready to vote when the Mississippi pastor proposed we amend the statement by adding the word perversion. Immediate silence. Deep silence. Why didn't people just tell them to forget it? After all, no one else wanted the denomination to view us as dolts and rubes any more than I wanted people to think that of me. Now you understand how it changes things for me to add the fact that this pastor from Mississippi was an African with an earned doctorate. Dad used to say that we need to read the Bible through the eyes of other centuries and cultures in order to understand what God is saying. Our own prejudices blind us to truths that contradict our cultural conceits. And if ever there has been a cultural conceit, it is the pride Christians have taken these past 30 years or so in our complete repudiation of the shame of sodomy. Every one of us is convinced that people who use the word sodomy and perversion lack compassion for gays and lesbians. We judge ourselves and one another by how polite and accepting our words and actions are towards gays and lesbians who have been bullied at school. It's not the man who continues to use the word sodomy, unnatural, and perversion we admire and emulate, but rather the man who embraces sexual orientation and sprinkles his speech with non-judgmental phrases such as alternative lifestyle, sexual orientation, and sexual minorities. And if that man finds it within himself, 
If that man finds it within himself to hint at God's judgment of these sins and sinners committing them, his highest point of Christian courage and boldness is to suggest that such alternative lifestyles aren't, quote, God's best for human flourishing. It's the old guys who laugh. In our world, gone mad in shows of support for gays, lesbians, and transsexuals, the man who speaks this way is seen to be a paragon of Christian virtue. The more unflappable a man is in the presence of the sodomitic perversion, the more street cred he has among Christians for his compassion. In fact, the more equanimity we demonstrate towards these sins, the more we trust that God is at work sanctifying us making us more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The man least likely to use the word sodomy and perversion in connection with the sodomitic perversion is the man our search committee hires. He'll know how to minister in a university environment where diversity and pluralism are our daily realities. He won't embarrass us. This man is our hero. We love his podcasts. We put his books on our desks and coffee tables. We're all groupies at his conference. We want to be just like him. <laughs> Let's go have some scotch. Evangelicals, as I said, had taught me well. I had drunk their Kool-Aid and consequently was as progressive as a 33-year-old mainline evangelical pastor could be back then in the mid-'80s. And so along with everyone else, I sat there shell-shocked at the proposal of this Mississippi pastor that we state publicly that homosexual intercourse is a perversion. And yet there was Dad telling me to read and listen to the Bible through the eyes of other cultures, and this brother, he was an African, and he ministered in the Deep South. Happily, then, I was inclined to listen to him. And it turned out everyone else was also. (laughs) Amazingly, after the initial shock of the thing worn off, everyone accepted the amendment and the word perversion was added. In fact, not just added, but embraced. It was clear everyone thought he was right and was grateful that he had been a prophet to us. And that is how I came to repent of my oh-so-precious language, oh-so-perfectly constructed to communicate my cultural sophistication. When this dear brother asked us to add perversion to the statement, I looked through his eyes and felt through his heart the sin of my embarrassment at God's words condemning homosexuality. And I saw he was right and I was wrong. In fact, not just me, but all of us there around the table who were not black Africans were all wrong. And it took someone from another culture and race to point it out to us and show us the way back home. The word went in, and across the intervening years, I've often remembered that lesson and done my best to teach it to others. If we think, if we dare to think we are wiser than God in his choice of words in his word, whether those words are unnatural, effeminate, abomination, or brother, We prove ourselves fools. It was God himself who invented language, and he uses it as he pleases, as he sees best, as he knows to be most helpful. 
if we think we can say what he's saying in his word, but say it better by not using his words, we're terribly wrong. (laughs) Another way of putting it is that when we find ourselves embarrassed by God's words, it's not because our words are better. It's because we don't want to communicate the truth. His words communicate perfectly. Not long ago, Pastor Said Abedini returned to the U.S. and enjoyed a reunion with his loved ones. He was freed by Iran after almost four years of imprisonment. What was his crime? An Iranian judge found him guilty of sedition. The judge closed the doors of his courtroom and had Pastor Abedini beaten in an effort to get him to admit that his real purpose for being in Iran was to overthrow the government. Pastor Abedini reports this exchange with the judge. Judge, you know why you are here. Abedini, yeah, I'm here because of my Christian faith in starting the house churches. Judge, no, you are not here for this. You are here because you want to use Christianity to remove government. Abedini, no, I don't. I don't want to do that. I just came here to start orphanage, loving people, and share the gospel with people, and just that. Judge, no, you guys are using Christianity to remove the government. That's the reason that you are here. Abedini, no, I didn't do that. I pray for you. I love you. And, and I didn't come for that. Pastor Abedini says his denial of the charge that he was trying to overthrow the government did not please the judge. Quote, he started yelling at me very angry, unquote. Now, a simple question. Who is right, the judge or Pastor Abedini? They both couldn't have been telling the truth, could they? Actually, yes. Pastor Abedini was telling the truth when he denied he'd come to Iran to overthrow the government, and the judge was telling the truth when he said that Pastor Abedini had come to overthrow the government. Both statements were true. In an Islamic nation, preaching the gospel and building Christ's church is the most revolutionary thing a man can do. True, the revolution Pastor Abedini was seeking was spiritual. He was calling men to turn from Allah to the living God from falsehood to truth, slavery to freedom, death to life. If God blessed Pastor Abedini's preaching and church planning with the same fruit among Muslims, he blessed the Apostle Paul's preaching and church planning with among Jews and Greeks, Christianity would completely disrupt Iran's law and order. Christians would be a profoundly subversive influence within an Islamic social order built upon the oppression and suppression of women. Christians would speak out against the increased availability and use of pornography imported from these United States. Christians would not fast during Ramadan and would publicly condemn the state's torture and murder of Sunni Muslims. The government would face a growing number of citizens who refused to obey Sharia law and condemned Islamic Jihad. If God blessed Pastor Abedini's work, soon Iran's Islamic revolutionary courts would be filled with Christian converts accused of using Christianity to remove the government, and the accusations would be true. Iran is an Islamic state, after all. Our Lord possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, and on that basis, he commanded us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's easier to recognize how subversive faithful Christians are in an Islamic state than here in these United States. We're tempted to think that when Pastor Abedini landed on American soil, he was once again free to preach the gospel and plant churches without anyone accusing him 
of using Christianity to remove the government. But truth be told, Christian faith has become subversive in these United States, and the persecution of Christians is growing in frequency and intensity. Nobody is content with unfriending us anymore. Now they're determined to take our jobs, bankrupt our businesses, and corrupt, corrupt our children. You say I'm overstating things, but let me make the case. Just in my own limited circles, I know several Christians <coughs> who've been close to losing their jobs because of their witness concerning manhood and womanhood. <coughs> and many pastors have lost their job over this. These non-pastors aren't obnoxious or pugnacious or loudmouthed individuals out to make a point. The ones I know are competent and respected in their work. Several of them at the high levels of responsibility. I wish I could tell you their positions and what they did that led to their job being in jeopardy. But doing so would put their job in jeopardy. <coughs> it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? Say anything that is helpful concerning manhood and womanhood today, and you run the risk of having a sex discrimination complaint filed against you and getting fired. Say anything helpful toward the repentance of gays and lesbians today, and you run the risk of having your company's human resources department send you to diversity training classes under threat of being terminated. So everyone posts and comments on the, on the Internet under pseudonyms, which hide our Christian commitments, and we keep our mouths at school and work Closed outside the home and church, we lay low. But even in church, I am under pressure to stop teaching and preaching biblical manhood and womanhood. Did you hear me? In this church, I am under pressure to stop preaching biblical manhood and womanhood. Wait, I've got to find my place. Because the government of the state of Indiana is watching. And I don't want to hurt my flock. Because they listen to my preaching and they read my blog and that's why they th fire the members of this church. It's not my elders it's because I love my flock. I don't want to hurt them by saying things in the pulpit and on the blog that is going to cause my people to lose their jobs. The Indiana government employee was not making an idle threat when as part of an annual review process, he sent a shot across the bow of our church by warning a member of our congregation that because of my teaching and preaching that, quote, women are not equal... His words, not mine. He would have been fired if his work were not so good. So you see our freedom of religion in this land of the free. Pastors across the country are now carefully packaging their preaching and teaching for private and public consumption, both inside and outside the church. We don't want to alienate visitors or lose members because of what we say about sexuality and worship. And if we are willing to alienate visitors and lose members in worship by faithful words, we will still be restrained by fear of church members losing their jobs because of what we say when state employees read and listen to our teaching and preaching online. Everyone knows this already, but it bears repeating, in an online world, there is no place to hide. Sure, your pastor will promise you, all right, now this is, this is the end, we're getting, we're getting to the end. 
Sure, your pastor will promise you he doesn't ever, ever alter the Bible's message for fear of alienating visitors, losing members, or causing men and women of the congregation to lose their jobs. Quote, trust me, he says, I would never do that. Absolutely never. If not, then he's a better man than I. What I say in the pulpit is always written and said in an immediate awareness that Big Brother is reading and listening and that proclaiming God's truth with authority may well cause visitors to be alienated, members to leave, or one of our members to be fired. Dear Pastor, do you really think you are any different? Do you write your sermon with one eye to God and his word and one eye to the world, and that one eye to the world, does it cause you to sharpen your points and applications or to dull them? I've only heard one man make the claim that he never dulled his preaching and teaching to make himself palatable to his people. It was the Apostle Paul, and I believe him. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Why do I believe the Apostle Paul's testimony? <laughs> because he never stopped suffering for his faithfulness to God. And much of that suffering is chronicled in his New Testament epistles, which record the constant attacks upon God's truth, not outside, but inside the church. In other words, the most important battles the Apostle Paul fought for the gospel were against those who infiltrated the church, promoted themselves as wise men and leaders, and flattered the members of the church with false doctrine in order to gain those members as their supporters. Read the epistles. The Apostle Paul talks about this quite explicitly. Isn't this exactly what Jesus promised his followers and their leaders? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. <clears throat> By the way, you should know, I'm reading this to you, right? And you think I'm larger than life, right? But you should know that Steve, Stephen Baker and the, the other pastors here, they never stopped saying that to me. And why do they say it to me? Because I what? It begins with a W. No. No. And the second letter is H. I am the world's greatest whiner. Okay? So enough of this. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Did you ever notice how the Apostle Paul ends his battle with the Judaizers recorded in his letter to the Galatians? Two statements in Galatians are particularly precious to me as a pastor seeking to grow in my boldness and faithfulness to God as I shepherd the souls bought with the blood of his precious son. The first is this plaintive lament that comes out of Paul, unbidden in the heat of battle, Galatians 4.16. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth. <laughs> oh, man. And then the second one, he's very weary, the battle's over, and he's signing off, and he says this, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. 
Sure, many pastors will tell you it's not true of them that they don't feel this pressure, but such pastors are one or more of several things. They live in a cultural backwater that has escaped the thought police. They are clueless concerning the world we live in today. And they have failed to grow in their self-critical capacity and have no suspicions of their own motivations, fears, and rhetorical methods. For years, it's been clear to me that the teaching, preaching, and writing of Clear Note Church in Bloomington is consumed by many who won't admit to it publicly. They are the modern-day equivalent of Nicodemus, who came for teaching under cover of darkness and woke, spoke up in defense of Jesus among the chief priests and Pharisees without divulging that he was Jesus' disciple. As I write, the news is that the Christians who videotape Planned Parenthood's women scheming to sell the body parts of their victims has been indicted by a Texas grand jury. For what? Well, we all know for what. For videotaping Planned Parenthood's women scheming to sell the body parts of their victims. The actual charge is a mere technicality. Those indicted are being persecuted because they're Jesus' servants and they testified of righteousness to this evil generation. Yes, yes, I know we'd like to write them off for not doing it the way we would have done it, which, of course, would have been the right way to do it, right, meaning the way to do it that would not have resulted in you or I being hated and universally scorned by the media and indicted by any grand jury anywhere at all and tissed and second-guessed by fat and complacent Christians everywhere across the country. A little story. About 20 years ago, I'd moved to a city that had an abortuary, and I believed it was my duty to go down and picket that murderous place each week on the day when they killed babies. I used to take my children with me, and we'd spend a few hours out in front of the building holding signs and speaking up in defense of God's little ones. After a time, I got to know one of the women who worked for Planned Parenthood. One time when it was very hot, she came outside and gave my daughter a glass of cold water to drink. We'd see each other in the community. She was a prominent citizen who was quite active politically. And one day, walking in front of the public library on Kirkwood Street, downtown, I saw her in front of me and my high school daughter walking next to me. It hit me that this woman was the modern-day equivalent of Heinrich Himmler on a stroll through the streets of Sobibor, or Sobibor. Sobibor. After visiting the concentration camp there and witnessing a gassing, Okay, hypothetically. Okay, don't get technical on me. This woman ought not to be able to appear in public without being called out for her traffic in the bloodshed of little ones. I asked my daughter to cross the street and wait for me, and I went up to this woman and I said, Jane Doe, killing babies is terribly wicked. She's surrounded by the leading democratic women of the community. She's holding forth. And I walk up to her, and I say, killing babies is terribly wicked. I looked at her for a second to reinforce what I'd said, and then I crossed the street where I met my daughter, and we went off to dinner together. A week or two later, our family was at the farmer's market. I was walking with my wife, Mary Lee, and two of our younger children were there holding our hands, and our youngest son, Taylor, who was two or three, was riding on my shoulders. All of a sudden, I noticed the same woman was walking right next to me, and immediately I repeated my words, Jane Doe, killing babies is terribly wicked. 
This woman was not so friendly after that. Within a week, I'd received a call from a detective of the Bloomington Police Force who wanted to arrest me for stalking. Because I'd had my children with me when I spoke to this woman, he quickly realized stalking laws were not going to work. And he went back to the woman and explained to her that she'd have to find another tactic, which she did. A week or so later, a news story ran on the front page. I think it was the front page of the paper, but it was prominent about the local pastor of the most prestigious evangelical church in the community. I'm not there anymore, anymore, by the way. It was on the east side of town. Having a restraining order filed against him by a prominent political leader of the community. Under penalty of perjury, this woman claimed I had intimidated her physically, and she was afraid for her physical safety. She later admitted to me privately that she'd never been afraid of me, and I'd known that without her telling me that. Of course, it was all very scandalous to my elders' board and the wealthier and more respectable people of our congregation. The elders took hours and hours and days and days on it. They wanted to fire me, but the congregation... Okay. They loved me. Okay? Do you mind me saying that? And so there it sat for the next year or two. But the minute the article ran in the paper, I knew it was just a matter of time until I was gone from that church. Now, why the story? A couple reasons, maybe three. First, when I finally resigned as a senior pastor, I had a meeting with a few members of my presbytery who had been called in to help with the conflict. Following their investigation, I met with them. They summarized their conclusions with this statement. Tim, one question keeps coming up over and over again in our work. We keep asking ourselves if a man can be a prophet and be a pastor. And they said they weren't sure it was possible. That night, I spoke on the phone with David's and my brother Nathan, who has gone to be with the Lord. He was a pastor. Telling him their question, he responded, quote, they asked the wrong question. The question isn't, can a man be a prophet and a pastor, but can a man be a pastor and not be a prophet? Think about it for a while, and may the Lord give you honesty in your inward parts. Second, aren't there a lot of questions you want to ask me about why I felt like I myself had to pick at the abortuary? What good did it do, and why on earth did I take my children with me? Couldn't my wife have done it and had more success? Couldn't we get Rosaria Butterfield to come and do it? Couldn't we have just left it to the Roman Catholics? And why pick a fight with someone in public, especially a woman, especially a woman who was a prominent citizen? Didn't I know I was risking the loss of my job, was condemning this woman's part in the bloodshed of the little ones worth losing the ability to preach the gospel in the community? Didn't I know I would become disqualified for serving as a minister because I could no longer have the good reputation with those outside the church that's required by Scripture? My answer to these and many other objections is simply to respond that I did what I did because I believed it honored God and was a necessary fulfillment of my call to witness to Jesus Christ. I was intent on not being ashamed of my Savior or his words. 
Maybe you and I have different callings and gifts. Honestly, I'm not saying that facetiously, okay? Maybe I was wrong. I don't think so, and neither did my wife and many other godly little people in the church and community. I took comfort from them. Sometimes I wonder if the Apostle Paul sat through elders' meetings where he was on the chopping block because he'd raised the riot led by Demetrius, which resulted in the mob of Ephesians being, quote, filled with rage, unquote, (laughs) for two hours crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Is there ever a time when persecution couldn't have been avoided by a little postponement, a little compromise, a little more tact? Did Jesus really have to die? Do we really have to take up our crosses and follow him? Is it really necessary for us to be persecuted like our master was? Must we really be hated? Must we really witness to our faith publicly? What was John the Baptist thinking, telling Herod he ought not to have his brother's wife? Didn't he realize he would lose his head, literally? Was there no one who cared enough to warn him? Then the Apostle Paul, why all the danger and suffering? I mean, honestly, why all the drama? And again, please think about all this and ask the Lord for truth in your inward parts. Third, there is no such thing as perfection in our witness to the gospel today. Each of us has our own sins and temptations, and we will see those sins and temptations in everything we do and say, including our gospel witness. We all know the routine. Satan tempts us to be silent until we're perfect. And then he makes sure we're never perfect. So we're always silent. Perfectionism is the perfect gag for Christians. But if we wait until we're perfect to witness to the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, we'll never do it at all. We'll never do it. Let me confess something that the pastors and elders and my wife have heard me say many, many times through the years, okay? Getting written up in the paper and having a restraining order filed against me and sitting through hours of elders' meetings in which the elders condemned me and my witness, culminating in the members of my presbytery telling me they didn't know if I could be a prophet and a pastor, all these things, combined with my own faithfulness and sin to whoop me. To whoop me. You know what whoop is? Whoop is what causes you to be a wuss. These things whooped me. And I have never been as bold since. Never. I understand why the Apostle Paul asked his fellow believers to pray for him to be bold in his witness. We can be bold once or twice when we're younger. And we can spend the rest of our lives gagged and silent because of what we suffered and our desire never to suffer like that again. But is this how we want to live, ashamed of Jesus and his words? Wouldn't we rather tell Herod he ought not to have his brother's wife and lose our head for it? I mean, really. 
Can you imagine the joy when John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul died and stood before our Lord to hear from his lips this most precious of all eulogies? Well done, good and faithful slave. Slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray.